Welcome to another fun-filled, jam-packed episode of Seishura. I'm Scoot Magoo. I'm Jim Jam. And we have a fun little um, slate of things to talk about today, of differing topics and um, intrigue, uh, some some of which I am very much looking forward to hearing Jimmy's opinion on. And yeah, that... I, I will say ahead of time, um, I think we're both sort of running on... Um not much sleep or at least less sleep than we're used to so uh if we sound sluggish you know just sorry bear with us yes uh yeah but no there's some cool stuff today so yeah and starting off with something i'm very interested to hear jimmy's opinion on um (laughs) Uh, one of my favorite bands has been earth for quite a while and they released a new single off uh, their new album coming out in May, uh, yeah, full, full upon her upon burning, lips. burning lips, and yeah. the song is called "Cats on the Briar." Um, I, I've really been a fan of Earth for quite a long time. Uh, it started with the Angels of Darkness, Demons of Light duo. Um, just something about their music. Uh, I at the time I didn't really like really long music. You know, really long, you know, droning you know, music about atmosphere. I liked more direct. Um, kind of aggressive stuff, but what what I really enjoyed then and, and even enjoy better now is kind of the subtle progression that Dylan Carlson, who's the the guitarist, the mastermind of the band, brings to the table. You know, essentially it's the same droning riffs, and it's kind of this you know psychedelic stonery, uh, spaced out vibe. But there's these subtle progressions throughout, and it's just very hypnotic. Um, they incorporate on some other albums. They've incorporated organ. Some of them they incorporate cello. Um, it's just very, very you know, methodically paced but contemplative. Um, unfortunately, and, and influenced by Cormac McCarthy too, which yeah. I always I love bringing that up because I I, I actually read um, oh, I don't I, I think it was um, the, uh, McCarthy's Border Trilogy, and I was listening to um, Angels of Darkness, Demons of Light, like both of those. And they work like really well, despite the fact that I think Bees Make Honey in the Lion Skull is actually based on a McCarthy novel or inspired by it. Oh, yeah, I think you mentioned that before. Yeah, it's inspired by uh, Blood Meridian. Oh, yep. But, okay. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bees is a bit brighter. What would happen with their their careers? They were like kind of the traditional. Well, at the time, it was a you know pioneering sound, but the, the traditional kind of what you think of with Sun. And those droning, you know, heavy guitar chords, um, they really helped pioneer that. I think they were one of the first, at least one of the first big bands to even mm. do that. Um, then they released a few albums. Uh, their last album was more kind of just a traditional stoner doing almost grunge-leaning album, you know, before they had a big hiatus because he was really, really good friends with Kurt Cobain. After Kurt Cobain committed suicide, he kind of went into a depressive fog. This is Dylan Carlson, the mastermind mm. of Earth. Finally, he came back with this kind of gothic country, you know, drone rock kind of sound, which he has carried them for several albums up until Primitive and Deadly, which I think came out in 2015. Um, And this is the first album in quite a while where they introduced vocals and it just did not work for me. It did not work for me at all. It sounded like really, 
bland, like grunge-leaning stoner doom that just was not what I went to Earth. Not only was it not what I went to Earth for, but it just it sounded so painfully average. It just was not an interesting iteration of that style. Yeah, and then they they did a collaboration with the Bug, right? Like I think after that. Yeah, the, he you know he did a collaboration with the Bug, which was very interesting. Like kind of this industrial drone, you know, kind of guitar meets industrial landscapes. It was really interesting. Uh, um, uh, why is his name spacing? But the main guy from Godflesh. Um, oh, Justin Broderick. Yes, thank you. He um, yeah. he showed up on a couple tracks and it was really cool and the Dylan I didn't know that yeah it was huh. it was really interesting you know he, some, some was his vocals other he added some kind of typical kind of guitar like the god flush like you know the chugging chords and then like, yeah. the, the pinches and harmonics or whatever um, then Dylan Carson released an, a, a solo album which was kind of more in line with what Earth had been doing that I liked but maybe a bit more straightforward but still it gave me hope for this new album and finally to this new song Cats on the Briar it definitely feels a bit more direct. It's kind of like what Earth has been doing, except, you know, first of all, the song is much shorter. Like, it's, you know, probably mm. half as long as most of Earth's music, or, you know, or, you know, the, the songs, single they've, track. Been, yeah, yeah. songs they've been releasing. Um, I'm really hoping, because the track list is also, uh, I believe, like, seven or eight songs. The last several albums have ten. Ten, ten songs, geez. Yeah. You know, the last several albums have had, like, five each. And, of course, each of those has been ten plus minutes. So I'm pretty interested to see where this goes. But basically, yeah, it's it's a little bit less hypnotic, less um, spaced out, a bit more focused. Um, I'm really hoping they do spice that up a little bit because what's, what's always worked with, with me or for me with, with this style is that it's so long and contemplative and you can kind of get lost in the composition. But when you mm. have something that's only, uh, how long is this, like six minutes? Yeah, um, around there. It's about six minutes long. It's kind of just feels like a regular song, so it doesn't have that same. It doesn't you can't rely on like the ambiance and, and that kind of effect. I still like it. Um, absolutely going to listen to the album. You know, really, really looking forward to, to to this. Hoping that they get somewhat back on track. Would love to hear. They haven't had organ in their sound for a while. That's something that they had on bees and. Uh, Bees Made Honey, which was a, a big component. I would love to hear that again. Really mm. hoping they don't get rid of cello, because I just, at least I didn't hear it very prominently in this song. Uh, I don't know if it was it was there. Um, uh, maybe somewhere in the background, but like it was really just kind of that, you know, drum, bass, and guitar, you know, forward um, approach. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll turn it over to you. And, and I know, don't think you've ever really been a big Earth fan, but what do you think of this I, new track? Yeah, I've not. Um, I, I think way back in the day we did a um, a post for we did an episode on Earth three. I think it was either yeah. Earth two or Earth three. Yeah, it was, it was Earth two. Um, and I was really I was not a fan. And like I I mean to be honest, like I I this isn't to say I'm because I, I'm I don't I don't hate them by any means. It's more like I'm just very ambivalent to the sound in general. I enjoyed. Angels of Darkness, Demons of Light. I enjoyed both of those while reading Cormac McCarthy because I just thought the two just dovetailed so nicely. Um, but on its own, it's not usually something I can just sit down and listen to. Mm-hmm. Like, because for me anyway, it doesn't uh, offer sort of a way, like sort of like a through line. Like it, uh, it sort of doesn't keep my attention in a way. And I mean, I I, I understand that like ambient music sort of isn't supposed to keep your attention it's supposed to be like sort of like atmospheric in a way but like 
I mean, I, I, I know ambient albums that, like, I can actually pay attention to and, like, drone albums and things like that, and this just isn't one of them. And, um, unfortunately, it's the same thing with Cats on the Briar. Yeah. Um, I was just pretty much indifferent to it. Like, you know, it, it sounded... It, it, it sort of reminded me of, like, like a hybrid between Bees Made Honey and um, Angels of Demons, or the Angels of... And Angels of Darkness, Demons of Light. Mm. Yeah. Um, just because, like, you you could hear a little bit of distortion going on and things like that, but you still had, like, this very stripped-back, folky sound to everything. Um, though I will say, I, I, me, I don't know if maybe, maybe this is just me, but, like, did the, did the drums sound out of time to you? That's something that I found does take a little getting used to because the, the, the nature of the... <laughs> The music yeah. is so oddly tempoed, and that's not that's not a that's not a, a word, but I'm going to use it. Um, that her drumming can be very methodical and sometimes seem off. Um, it doesn't sound that way to me, but I've also been listening to the music for a while that I can totally see. Yeah, yeah. It, it just I think maybe just because it's such a slow tempo that to include percussion with such a slow tempo and with such um, I mean such minimal instrumentation, I think it could sound a little bit off. Um, which yeah, I, I you know it's I sort of think I think um what's the last track off of Headhunters? I think it's Vein Melter, mm. if I remember correctly, and it, it, that has that really weird slow beat too. Um, that like it it just has like this booziness to it almost, and like like uh, this track sort of had that too. That was just like I wasn't sure whether it was purposeful or not. Um, and like. It's a, a, it can sometimes irk me when when tracks like aren't in time like at least like if you're if you're planning it on having like a specific tempo as opposed to like just you know an improvised piece mm-hmm. um so you know really overall just ambivalent you know at the same time you know I, I i suggested that we talk about this just because you know i i feel like we talk about a lot of stuff i like on here and i feel like we should talk about more stuff you like so you know i i'm 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 totally open to um, reviewing this in a couple months when it comes out. Because, what, it comes out April? Is that? I think May. May. Um, Doing May, so. Yeah, I would love to hear because, again, I have no idea where, what direction this is going to take. I yeah, mean, no, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a pretty good idea that I'm, of my feelings about it already, yeah. but I really, I do like giving stuff like this a try. You know, even if it's just for, you know, shits and giggles, so. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm definitely interested to see because uh, the first track from um, Primitive and Deadly really was just kind of a straightforward Doom track. It was like a heavier version of what they've been doing, and it got me excited. And then suddenly the rest of the album was just incredibly lackluster. So mm. I'm hoping that this is the opposite. Whereas you know I was excited by that first track, and then the album let me down. And then on this one where I'm kind of I I like it, but just not super excited about it. Hopefully the rest mm. of the album kind of fleshes out. Um, unfortunately, that's how it seems to go a lot of the time. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced that, where you know a lot of times when I like the lead single a lot, the rest of the album just doesn't live up, and then you know vice versa. Yeah, but then again, you know, like Shushu's new album is like a really good well, example of like yeah, there are times that, when when it hits, it yeah. hits. Yeah, like I mean, I was listening to that earlier today, and I'm just like, I I just fucking love that album so much. Yeah. No, that's, like, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal. Record. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really like. I, I don't want to date myself with it, but like, 
I, th- I think this is album of the year for me already. It's only March, so <laughs> putting you uh, putting you on notice for that. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm definitely gonna get an earful in in December from from somebody, probably you. But <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I'm I'm really hoping this is kind of a you know there are definitely cases where it hits right off the bat, and other cases where it's kind of the opposite mm. of result I, from what you thought. I, I think sometimes with you know these with, with some singles. I think singles are more of a necessity because of the music industry mm-hmm. rather than, you know, an artistic uh, decision to release a track, you know, completely isolated from the rest of the album. Mm-hmm. So and considering just how conceptual and, you know, just, um, you know, true to the album format Earth is, um, you know, I, I feel like the track might translate differently when heard in the context of the entire record. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, I would say just, you know, uh, who, who knows at this point? Yeah, and I definitely feel that that the, the, what I was just talking about is a result of bands approaching that differently. You know, because obviously, mm. you know, it's very rare these days for a band or a group to not release elite singles. So do they approach it by releasing... Um, you know, the, the best song, like, do they put their best foot forward or yeah. do they release kind of, uh, obviously not that they think any of the tracks are kind of weaker or bad on their own album, but maybe something that's a bit more meat and potatoes or you know, something that's yeah. just a bit more of a core song. that's just kind of there to, um, that's something I think about a lot, actually. I, and you know, I was thinking about it, especially with, um, Danny Brown's atrocity exhibition. Cause like the lead single to that, I think it was either when it rain or, um, pneumonia, and I, I, both of those, I, I mean, I love the album now, but like hearing both of those, you know, at first I was like, this is the new Danny Brown. Like, whereas like if, if he had released like really doe as like the real, as like the lead single, oh, I would yeah. be like all over that shit. That's, so. that's a great example. Cause that, um, it, yeah, it was a very in your face. I guess that's based on the, like Detroit the Detroit house scene. Uh, when I was watching um, Dead on Hip Hop, they did when their review of it. They're actually from one of them is from Detroit, and that's where w- Danny Brown's w- from. Which track? Um, really dope. No, um, I think when it rain. Okay. It goes. When it rain and pour, get your ass on the floor now. Yeah, uh, and yeah. you you ain't no yeah um, yeah. He, when they were talking about it, they said that that was something that. Um, really harken back to the like you know og detroit electronic scene like just the, mm. the style that beat and whatnot um so it was kind of a, a very specific niche track that definitely grew over time with the the album but right off the bat it was definitely kind of a bold choice versus something like obviously a track with earl sweatshirt and kendrick lamar on it you know has yeah like more. A- and absol and Come absol on. yeah don't don't forget absol <laughs> don't, don't forget our man absol yeah um but yeah, obviously it has more immediate appeal. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm, in any case, I don't know how we got here, but <laughs> that's kind of how our conversations go, which is fine. Yep. But um, yeah, I'm very much excited for this new Earth album. And now for something completely different. Yeah. Um, we, on Heavy Blog, we posted... Um, I don't know how to pronounce this band's name, and I'm very, very I, sorry. Iapetus, I think. 
Iapetus. In any case, they're a, yeah. a two-man progressive death metal album. I actually are a, a progressive death metal band. I remember when Eden reviewed the, their album, The Long Road Home. Uh, I remember making the banner for it. Thought the music was cool when I listened to it back in 2017. And as Eden, our editor in chief's off to do, is he um, will connect with people he reviews or people he you know band members that reach out to him. And he saw him posting about how releasing a second album is going to be difficult. Um, so Ian reached out, asked him to write a post, and he, he wrote a very honest um, yeah. post about... Very frank, too. Yeah. Just just blunt with what needs to sort of happen yeah, in the music it, industry. And it was really interesting that he... Um, I mean, obviously, in some cases, he wasn't um, totally... Be all transparent about the numbers because in some cases, other yeah, I I meant more just in like you know instead of glossing over the big issue of money in the music industry and paying musicians, like he he gets very to the point in yeah, this article. Absolutely, and I think I think uh, it was very well written. I I really enjoy that he was able to to you know come forward with this, um, and mm-hmm. just to give people you know if you haven't read the article, um, just to give. Some numbers, he said that to make their first album, which is an entire you know DIY lowest cost you know affair, um, the revenue from that album with physical CD sales, Spotify, name your price donations on Bandcamp, merch, whatever, was seven hundred thirty dollars and seventy cents. Um, the cost of making the record was four thousand eighty nine dollars, and different costs related to their uh, you know like. Bandcamp Pro, Dropbox, you know, you know, gear and stuff like that, cost about seventy five hundred dollars. Um, See, I um, okay, I, I don't know if I'm getting into this too soon, but w- when I was reading this, the first thing that that sort of took me for a loop was like printing all these CDs that cost a thousand dollars to print, um, and then just giving them out for free. At concerts and shows and things like that, like that—that's something I, I I honestly don't understand. And and I, I mean, here's the thing: I I'm not a musician trying to make you know a career, you know, and trying to make money, you know. So I I I might be completely wrong, but I I feel like that's not the best decision to make, <laughs> um, especially when we have something called the internet that can get music to people for free and for relatively no cost, as opposed to printing 1,000, you know, like 100 CDs and then giving them all out for free. Yeah, like it's a bit of a dated tactic, if, if I'm being honest. I mean, that's something yeah. people, I mean, I've been at shows and, and festivals where people have, have done that. They've just gone around and passed out CDs just, you know, just because, I mean, it, 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 it is, like, it's better than passing out a download card because that's easy to get lost, at least if someone has a CD. It's like a physical reminder. Uh, obviously, yeah, nowadays, I, again, it is a very dated, not very, doesn't have the same utility it may have had, but. I, I think it depends on sort of, you know, what music you're playing to. Because, like, you know, if you're doing, like, a DIY, like, hardcore punk project, like, yeah, you know, put the thing on cassettes. Hand yeah. all those cassettes out. It shows, man. Like, uh, print it on bring vinyl. it back to the 80s. Yeah, I know. <laughs> do, like, do, do something nuts like that. You know, like, like, that actually makes sense. Because, like, you know, they're not thinking about oh you know how are we gonna monetize this is more like let's just do this shit mm-hmm. um whereas you know i think in this case you know this is a guy who's very passionate about 
making music. Uh, it, 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 by the way, Iapetus I, is a duo. So, um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, like, yeah, the like he's very passionate about what he's doing here, and he really, you know, he wants to be able to have, you know, a world where musicians can actually live off of what they're making. Um, and like, I, I really, I, I understand that. Like, it's really frustrating, especially just the way he's breaking it down. It's really, it's really kind of depressing in a way, uh, that things are like this. And so, you know, I, I have sort of a question for you and I, I mean, this is just, I don't expect like an, like an actual answer, but just sort of a jumping off point. But like, why do you think this is like it is? that we have all these musicians who can't make money, you know, who can't, you know, just do what they want to do without having to just like, you know, complete, I don't not even like sell out, but just like, like it, it just feels like they're burning money at this point. I think it goes back to, this is something I wrote. Um, I wrote a post a little while back and this is actually goes back to my thesis when I wrote about the streaming services. Um, but when I wrote a post about the fact that um, the XX released a new album that sold more actual physical units than the weekend's album Starboy, but because of streaming equivalent units, the um, Starboy technically was it, it technically quote unquote sold more albums. Um, and that kind of was a jumping off point for just how important streaming has become and how much physical sales are just kind of depleting and depleting and depleting, or I guess just becoming less important. And yeah, I, but, but, but I mean, sorry to interrupt, but like the weekend, you know, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I, I assume is pretty financially well off, you know? Sure. Yeah. And, and where I was going with that is that, you know, basically unless you're a, a really well-known artist that can gain because i mean if you have millions upon millions of streams like the weekend does then the amount of money you get from streaming is is pretty you know significant and that's what labels are going to look at these days that's what's really you know obviously album sales have not been the same for a long long time at this point but streaming is obviously it's you know it's growing it's the the main way people listen to music these days uh, even beyond piracy because it's just a lot easier um, than downloading anything, you just have it right there on you know whatever streaming mm -hmm. platform you use. I feel like that's ultimately starting to squeeze smaller artists out because you can't replace that. Type, I mean, you just can't replace that type of monetization. You can't re replace um, a, an era where people had to buy music. You know, you had to buy music to listen to it, and people regularly bought CDs and they bought tapes and, and vinyl. And you know, people still buy vinyl, but it's really not. A, a huge segment and obviously still people still buy CDs and tapes and what have you. I feel like that hole just can't be filled, you know, like, well, so he, he, here's just a, a, a counterpoint. Um, because like, I, I think, you know, even back in like the sixties, you know, when, you know, all, all you had was vinyl that people were buying and like, you know, anybody could put out stuff. You, there was still, tons of underground stuff that you know never got you know much traction you know so i i don't know if it's streaming like i th I feel like streaming is just like it's just a major it's a major change but it doesn't change the big part of it that like you know either you have the numbers or you don't yeah and like 
and and I think a lot of this num- like a lot of the numbers really depend on uh, really like a lot of perception. Like it's it's not like all, all you need is is the thought that you might be popular to sort of make you popular. If that makes any sense, like it's sort of like like I mean I look at like all like the meme rappers nowadays. Like all you have to think about is like oh yeah like like you know little pumps big you know and like you're like okay then he is like it's 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 sort of a mind game in a way if that makes any sense <laughs> well, well for me back in in the day i mean i mean people still if, if people wanted to hear your music they had to buy it and that that's just not the case anymore and, and mm. i think what's really changed you, you could just do it on the radio actually but well for for i'm talking for smaller ind- you know independent obviously larger artists have always had the radio they've always had you know mtv if that even you know if they still even serve that function anymore um but i think you know mid-tier and smaller artists um they relied on a core group of fans but and of course the, you know, obviously there are still fans that buy bands music yeah um but I think to a larger degree, the expectation is not there that you have to buy something to hear it because you don't have to. It's just you know, physically you can stream it, you put it on Bandcamp. So the amount that bands have to give away to even be noticed is is much larger because if people want to hear your music back in the day, they had to purchase your album. They had, they, they had to support you in some way. That's not the case anymore. I mean, I can't tell you how many... You know, I'm not trying to absolve myself of, of, of this. I can't tell you how many albums I've listened to on Bandcamp that I've you know never returned to or just never ended up buying. Mm. Um, and I think in general, it's, just, it's becoming more difficult um, in terms of what fans expect, especially in metal. You know, the production value and what metal sounds like or what people think metal sounds like has just gotten better and better and better over the years. Um, and I think that's a huge burden on bands you know you, you know one of the parts when they talk about how they had to have you know just basic pro level um instruments and that they you know want to do full you know professional production and recording quality i mean that's just something metal fans have come to expect you know a lot of the popular metal um artists especially in like heavier genres like death metal and whatnot it's it's very clean it's very well produced um it's just something that um Fans have somewhat come to expect, you know, especially mm. in these subgenres. So I think it's become more expensive and more difficult to make something that is going to sound to the quality of what not only listeners expect but what band members expect. See, I honestly, I, I actually completely disagree because I think uh, it's I think it's easier than ever to get really good production. You know, be, like you know, because a lot of this stuff is DIY now that you you can just buy programs. And like you know, you can teach yourself how to use, you know, some of these programs. Like you know, like, like you know, you can learn how to do Ableton and like you know, record like a pro. Like it's 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 much more uh, independent now, or at least it can be if you want. But I, I think starting to go back to this, but like you know, you say that like these people have to physically buy a copy of something, you know, that gets money. But the thing is like. You know, if 100 people buy your album or 100 people stream it on Spotify, you're still not making as much as someone who's who's you know who's sold a thousand units or streamed a thousand times on Spotify. Like like, regardless of of whether you know because I mean to be you know 
I, I, Spotify fucks over a lot of artists and it is not cool. But at the same time, like, it, it's all sort of a numbers game. Like, it, it really depends on, like, whether you get those streams or not. Yeah, but, it, but, but I, I feel like that's kind of what I'm saying, is that when you have larger artists that are, you know, streaming a ton, and, I mean, a lot of times it's just they're streaming, people are streaming the singles, and it's not even they're streaming the whole album. Um, that's what labels are going to pay attention to, I feel like. Well, that, what, I, what I meant is, like, I, I think all that's, all that's happened is sort of the the platform has shifted, because, like, you know, like, back in the day, it was just, you know, oh, if you sold this much, if you sold this many albums, you know, and, and so now it's just, it's more like, oh, it's, you, you've had this much streaming. Like, like do, do you see what I mean? Like, it, it the, the way it's, like, it, it's, it's not the, it's not the means that are important. It's sort of like the ends in this case and I, and I'm not saying that, that that's a good way to think about it or that this is, you know, ethical at all. Um but like I, I feel like not things really haven't changed in the sense that like, you know, it, it, unless unless you're big, you know, you're not big. Like I mean, it's it's that easy and like it, you know, unless you sort of know the right people, unless you can sort of get into the right like loopholes, you know, you, you're just going to be sort of down there in sort of the underground. But, I mean, like, back of the Soundskin era, you had, you know, bands, even death metal bands, like, you know, Cannibal Corpse and, and Deicide and Morbid Angel that caught labels' attention and they were willing to take a risk on them, you know, major, major labels. Um, and they had, you know, pretty high CD sales and it was, in that sense, they were having that kind of financial success. Uh, I just don't think that's translated over to modern metal bands because... People just don't buy physical media in the same way. And there's no barometer for... They don't have the same barometer. I feel like even the music industry doesn't know how to address this. I mean, back when Billboard introduced streaming equivalent units for you know what equals an album sale, I mean, that's kind of an arbitrary number. I feel like people still don't know how to... How to because buying an album and, listening, and streaming an album are, are not the same thing. Like I said, you know, if you look at the weekend streams on Starboy, it's not an even you know, set of numbers down the, down the board. You know, obviously Starboy and I Feel It Come and have, you know, exponentially more streams than any other songs on the album. So mm -hmm. really it's passive listening that's driving the market. Uh, it's passive listening of different songs um, by people. And not to say there aren't people who love, I know you, you love The Weeknd, I really enjoy The Weeknd, but, you know, there yeah. are a lot of people who stream these big artists just for singles or don't really, or song playlists or whatever. I know we've talked about this before. Um, and to go back to your recording point, I feel like to get, I mean, even you know, a band like Periphery, where their first album was self-produced, and today it just does not hold up because production quality is, is continuously increasing, increasing, and it, it takes a lot of manpower, and absolutely you can record at home, but I feel like to get the type of quality that a lot of bands strive for today, it is imperative to to kind of get that and take that next step and record with someone. See, I, I mean, I, I, I don't really know how true that is though, because like, I mean, so, so like, let's just, are you familiar with Moore's law by any chance? No. So it's this computer science theory that basically, um, memory will be get like it, it, it takes 
basically memory can get smaller and smaller as it grows larger and larger that like you know 10 years ago we had an iphone that could barely hold like five gigs and now we have one that that can hold like a terabyte like you know it can keep increasing but what people don't understand about this that the the side effect of mord's law is that you can also make things cheaper for the same quality as opposed to higher quality more expensive and so this has applied this is applied to the entire music industry in a way or at least to musical instruments and recording techniques because you I mean like back in the day you know to get a good microphone that you know five hundred dollars a thousand dollars i the microphone i'm using two hundred dollars like you know it's it, i i feel like you know I, again i'm i'm not going to say that like oh you can get like perfect you know gent recording with, with, with like one of these like you know dinky little microphones but like it, it's it's definitely not like like the divide the schism between diy and professional isn't as wide as it used to be i think is, is the point i'm making but there still is a schism and if oh, you, yeah. if you look yeah, at but... major bands that you know i think periphery one was you know they were probably one of the biggest bands of the genre was self-recorded and then eventually they went to a larger studio setting because there is still a difference and yeah. these bands can hear i mean the people generally want to have a bigger production value the more they they go up and there is a, a cap i mean it definitely absolutely has increased but there is still a deficit between what you can do in a studio with um also what you can afford because you know mm. what a major studio can afford and a well-known metal producer can afford is different than what these guys were before and no, you know th- that definitely. that access has absolutely increased much much more than um you know than really at any time ever um but yeah i i also sort of want to point out with this article that i i think part of the reason a lot of these musicians are having tough times you know like for instance like you know the, the, he actually mentioned how devin townsend's living months to month which is really sad considering just how passionate Devin Townsend is about his music. Yeah. Like, I mean, all the stuff we talked about last week that like, you know, he has critical success up the wazoo. Yeah. But like that, 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 that doesn't pay your rent. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Um, but I, I think part of the reason that a lot of this is happening is because metal is such an insular genre nowadays. Yeah. That absolutely. like, you, you don't really see it crossing over a whole lot. Like I think maybe, Deaf Heaven when Sunbather was coming out, maybe Code Orange with like their last album. Not to say I enjoy that album by any means, but <laughs> um, you know, like the, the, there's very little crossover to the mainstream in metal because uh, it's just like it's you know it's it, it, it's 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 not an easy genre to listen to uh, if you're you know uninitiated to it if you're not used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to hear people just screaming and like. To hear like a lot of like atonality and like uh, feedback and things like that, like you know, it's it's very it can be very harsh on the ears if you're not if you don't know what you're you know, like if you aren't prepared for it basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think part of this has to do with just metal being metal, um, because like you know, like if 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 Iapetus was like you know a SoundCloud rapper. I'm not saying that that they're going to be more successful, but I think they have the opportunity to be more successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I feel like the chances are greater. Whereas with this, like you know, 
your best shot is to sort of, you know, you still use like the slowly dying metal blogosphere to like, you know, rise up a little bit until a label, you know, takes notice and assigns you. Mm-hmm. But even then, you know, you're not really making money then because you owe money to the label if they give you an advance. Um, you know, it, it's it's just like it, it, it's it's like sort of like clusterfucks within clusterfucks, basically, mm-hmm. is the best way I can put this whole thing. And it, I mean, it, it, it sucks. I, I really I, I hate that things have to be like this. Um, and I think just one last sort of subject I really want to tack on because this was something I was thinking about the last couple of days. Um, you know, I I think what people forget with this as well is that um, when you don't have sort of when you're not being paid to do this, um, you also nobody has any expectations for what you're doing. And I think that that can be a positive, actually. Like, you know, you, you actually get the chance to sort of make the music you want. You call it on your shots. Like, I think that that's sort of a positive of this, that, like, these guys have, you know, like, you know, they, they are not doing very well financially. But, like, everything that they've made so far has been by their call and by, like, their shot, you know, and their creative input. You know, as opposed to, you know, this being like some bland corporate, you know, like think tank uh, produced idea. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the trade off is that, you know, you don't have anything. Um, you know, the only thing that goes in your music is what you want to go in your music. Um, I think it becomes exceedingly difficult with um, having to balance work. You know, to, you know, working to survive and then finding the spare. You know, I, I find difficulty doing the things I like to do in my spare time. You know, yeah. beyond work, so I can't imagine recording an album. You know, writing, recording an album, um, and working full time. Um, but I mean, at least you have your own autonomy. Then you know, that's sort of like you know, uh, like personal confession. Like I'm always nervous about publishing, uh, just because I, I sort of you know let like. When I write something, I write it the way I want it to be written, and I don't want some idiot editor <laughs> to change it, frankly, uh, because like like you know, it's it's my vision. Like like you know, you might think, oh, like this is wrong or this is wrong, but like in my eyes, this is the way it needs to be. Mm. And I think, you know, if if we had this type of you know possibilities where you know musicians could you know actually make money off of what they're doing. I just have this fear that their autonomy and that their um, willingness to experiment more might might actually go down, too, because you know experimentation is is just not conducive with you know with making money like <laughs> like like John Zorn you know that like they it's only because of basically that like grant money that like Zadok Records is like still afloat. But like, but not everyone is, is I don't want to say is lucky but not everyone has those kind of resources at their disposal, um, you know basically he's been able to experiment because he has had that financial support. Yeah, but 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 that's sort of my point is that like it, you know without that like you know I, part of it is that it's independent like, like a grant gives you money to do with it however you will, but if the record company is advancing you money like they can sort of 
push things in different directions. It's, it's, it's like the same thing in the movies. Like, you know, if, um, you know, if a producer puts in, you know, like it, it, an executive producer can have a huge amount of sway over a movie, regardless of what the director wants. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, it, it, I, like, I'm not saying that like experiment, like experimentation would just go away if this suddenly happened. But like, I, I, I think that we need to think more. Like, I think, I think that all I'm trying to say is that there's more to this uh, discussion than people might believe. Sure. Uh, I mean, all I'd say is a lot of artists don't have the same. Again, I'm not saying, I mean, Zorn has earned that type of, of backing and whatnot, but, you know, not every artist. I mean, people still need to eat. People seem to live. And, and you No, know, I have... mean, he still needs to eat, too. He barely does. I mean, it's a, like if you listen to like interviews with him, like he ate nothing but like potatoes for years back in like the 80s when he was still trying to like, you know, he, he could barely make a living, basically. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just saying that like, like I think we we focus on the monetary aspect of this and I, I think we should and I think it sucks that we haven't more because I think this problem wouldn't be as much of a problem if we were able to just talk about it more but I think there, there's also the matter of the art that's actually being made as well and I, I just don't want to see the quality of that art decline because of that and, I, and I'm not saying it's going to but I, I just I think that an awareness of all the possibilities of uh, of such like of, of what we're talking about should be thought about you know sure and, and i think the 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 point of this article hopefully was you know he wanted people to tell him he was wrong and that there were ways that he could do things better and hopefully yeah. people reached out to him hopefully you know he, he found yeah. you know they found no, better I, ways to do things i i'm with you. i mean i you know i i i really don't want to seemed like i'm being negative here i i really because i did this article really got to me when i read it um and it's only in the, like the last couple of days that i've started thinking of sort of different counter arguments for it but like for the most part i i i really i don't like that this has to be the way it is you know i and i i speak this from a personal level too because i mean like you, you really think i want to get some bullshit job and you know just do that and like spend half of my life living a wage slave existence while I could be writing, you know, full time and like making money off of what I'm creating. But like, I, I would love for that to happen. Like I would love to be able to write full time, you know, but like, it's just, there are a lot of strings attached to all of this. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really my only point. So I, I really, I, I hope that things are better for him. You know, I, I hope that, you know, this will sort of be able to be a launching pad of sorts for musicians, you know, to be able to get, you know, to, to be actually to be able to live off of what they're doing. So. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, yeah. um, you know, hopefully <laughs> things I mean, I, I don't really foresee the landscape getting better unfortunately but hopefully it does I, hopefully. I mean I, I feel like it will but it's it's just very slowly like i think um like, like you, you can't argue that Bandcamp hasn't had an effect on the music industry like uh, like i mean for the first time ever we 
there's there's a way for artists to independently do what they do and share it to everybody but i mean that isn't to say that's perfect you know it still has a long way to go but i think we're 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 starting to get somewhere and i think this is just like another very small step forward yeah i mean like you even years ago i mean artists would have loved to have something like Bandcamp. so i mean that's a that's a big improvement Um, maybe myspace back in the day but that's a little different i don't know um anyway i i i feel like i've worn this conversation into the ground so i'm i'm sorry but <laughs> no it was, it was a great conversation uh, i think it's it's something that hopefully people are more willing to talk about going forward that's the only way anything gets better is if you you talk about it yeah. um and once again it's now time for something completely different um <laughs> After our conversation last week, we started talking more about modern classical. We started talking more about um, you know what that even means, and we decided to do another genre exploration where we each kind of went on our own way and, and looked at the genre. And well, but uh, let's let's be fair, Scott. We, we we thought of this before our Devin Townsend episode, and we just sort of switched gears a little bit. <laughs> Okay, well, I was yeah. gonna keep the I was gonna keep the facade, but that's fine. We can <laughs> come on. We we, we we can lift the veil. We're, we're, we're trying to put on a show here, man. We're trying to be like, hey, you know, just so happy. Yeah, we actually know what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> each decided to explore what because mod- modern classical is kind of it's almost an oxymoron uh, in a way. Mm. But it, it's you know I think now some people call it new music. Um, and what people consider modern isn't, you know, super modern, I guess, depending on how you look at it, especially because we're talking about a genre that's centuries upon centuries old, years mm. old. So um, how I approached it, and I'll, actually, I'll let you go first because I feel like I've, I've talked a no, lot. I, I, you know, I, I feel like you should go first because, I mean, I, I, I just, like, I beat the shit out of that last conversation. <laughs> and, and I feel like anybody listening to this is, like, probably want to like hurt me and and i'm willing to let them and i think that i i need to take a break for, for their sake fair enough i guess <laughs> so uh the way i did this is i want to figure out kind of a kind of a i don't know how to put it maybe not like methodical but like kind of a a reasoned way to approach this and i went to rate your music and i put it modern classical and i did uh, the top rated albums from the 1900s and then the top rated albums from the 2000s. Um, just to, or, you know, from 2000 on, just to kind of get, mm. you know, modern classical from the two most recent centuries that are kind of in the sphere of what we consider modern classical. And I picked, they weren't necessarily the top rated, but they were the highest rated that I either hadn't heard of or, um, you had listened to before, just generally I found interesting. Something I found mm. particularly interesting, especially when I got to the 2000s, is it's kind of gone to our conversation about classical music in the past, is that it really has become something people view as almost, I don't want to say background music, but soundtrack music. I mean, the, mm. when I went to the, two, the, the 2000s, I think the top five or at least top, the top, you know, four of the top five were all video game or film soundtracks. And throughout yeah. the top listings, it was all soundtracks. Uh, which again, there's nothing inherently yeah. wrong with that, so to speak. But it's just it's interesting that what classical has become for a lot of people. And again, radio music isn't just 
you know, we're even talking about like you know casual music listeners. These are you know albums that are rated by people who ostensibly care more about music enough to make a rate your music account. Yeah, um, it, I will say it's uh, just the thing with rate your music and classical music is that like uh, you know the thing we brought up last week is that classical music and doesn't always conf- like work well with the album format. So you know, I, I it can be a little confusing trying to navigate rate your music for classical music that's because also true. You, you mostly come across different recordings of like the same piece or like you know um sometimes it's you know like they they might re-record something that's been you know recorded like a million times before or you know like so it's not really about the piece itself it's more about the recording in this aspect so it, it, it just makes it a little murkier but anyway i'll shut up <laughs> No, I mean, the, the, that's a very fair point. Um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with people preferring movie or video game soundtracks. Yeah, no, there definitely isn't. Obviously, I, I wanted to focus about this for um, uh, you know, actual albums that composers you know made just for the sake of making music versus a soundtrack. Because you know, obviously, I feel like there's a slight distinction there, for sure. Um, so, to a point... Um, you know, there was a time when the overlap between the two was, was actually a lot greater. Uh, like, for example, like the Psycho soundtrack, the composer for that was actually a well-respected composer at the time. Sure, yeah. Um, I, obviously, but, I'm not talking about the esteem of the composer. I mean, in terms of what, I mean, what a, a soundtrack is, it, it was composed for a specific purpose for a specific film or performance. Whereas, yeah, but I mean, so, so was an opera, right? Or like a ballet. Like, you know, I, but at the same time, are you going to call like, uh, like the Nutcracker, like Tchaikovsky's, you know, like version of the Nutcracker, any less of a classical piece? I guess not. Um, yeah. I, I, sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm being a complete ass hat today. So I, uh, I'm just, I'm just gonna, <laughs> what, what, what did you end up listening to, Scott? <laughs> so I, I kind of, I tried to go the gamut, and I think I did mm. a, a decent enough job. Um, so the first one that I actually had never listened to this, you know, when I was thinking about it, I had never listened to this before, even though it's a pretty, pretty well known and respected uh, classical piece. Um, the Rite of Spring. I listened to oh, the version okay. yeah. with uh, the New York New York Philharmonic and Leonard Bernstein. Obviously, the composer being Igor Stravinsky. It was composed in 1913, um, recorded or performed, recorded in 1958 i think the recording i listened to was uh, not the original because I, I doubt that they would have had that kind of recording quality back in 1958. no <laughs> um but in any case it was you know their iteration of it um and it was interesting how it really did especially considering my experience with the other albums i, I picked it was interesting how you had um i think something that's really happened with modern classical is almost in a similar vein with jazz in the sense of kind of breaking free of kind of what classical music needs to be um, in the mm. sense of like, you know, specific structures, you know, being, you know, having you know, this kind of, you know, these instruments need to do this thing, these, you know, need to do that thing. A lot of times if you listen to classical music, it does feel very like it's performed to a T, like it's airtight. Um, you know, this mm. needs to be formed this way a lot, or at least to, to me, um, Obviously, there's a lot of virtuosity. There's a lot of great emotion in 
in older classical music, but a lot of times it does feel like you know this is the note, this is what how it needs to be performed and whatnot. And you get that a little bit with the Rite of Spring, but obviously it's very different in how um, kind of ag- aggressive it is, frankly. You know how intense mm. a lot of it is. There's a lot of dynamics. Um, it's it's. I assume at the time it was very. I mean, I know Stravinsky was was very forward looking uh, with his the way he composed, but it was a very um, just energetic and, and you know almost physical piece with very um, uh, sharp dissonant passages, uh, but it's still at a very classical core. Uh, you you could see um, someone who's not necessarily into more atonal or or kind of a avant-garde classical enjoying this it kind of is on the fringe but still really was very boundary pushing and it was Mm. interesting to to hear that this um i mean you think classical music and stravinsky i knew stravinsky was more somewhat more current but 1913 wasn't that long ago in in the grand scheme of of classical music i mean especially Mm. when you're talking about composers who were composing you know hundreds upon hundreds of years before that even so um I really enjoyed that. I'm glad I finally listened to it because obviously it's a kind of landmark classical piece. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then I jumped a, a few decades to uh, Tabla Rasa by Arvo Part. I love, I love Tabla Rasa. It's, yeah. um, it was pretty great. Uh, it was composed '77. Um, the version I listened to was, I guess, the the most regarded recording in '84. It had, um, 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 who's the pianist you don't like? Oh my god, um, <laughs> Keith Jarrett. Yeah, Keith Jarrett it had Keith Jarrett on it. Wait, wait, seriously? Yeah, the version I had had Keith Jarrett on it, and it was wow. I, I was just taking a shot. I thought I thought it would be like someone like like Glenn Gould or something. No, for sure, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's just this very grand. It kind of had what I'm. It definitely felt like a classical piece, but very much, you know, more open and beautiful, and just a lot of minimalist ideas and almost like proto ambient uh in a sense and just very gorgeous lush soundscapes it definitely felt more like a melding of different somewhat experimental or somewhat different styles at the time obviously you have keith jarrett you know kind of those clean polished um sounds and ideals and it really did um it was kind of classical in a different light like i feel like when i think of modern classical this is kind of the what i think of like the the, the go-to version because um, i definitely I, if there's kind of a slight distinction in the sense of again how they approach it like i definitely felt like um stravinsky was even still composing rite of spring in a very classical tradition and i feel like mm. arvo part with tabula rasa to me sounded like it was coming from a very modern perspective it was not it was not excluding different ideas at the time and obviously with with having contemporary people like um keith jarrett on the recording that's a, a good indication of that but you know i really really enjoyed um listening to that it was something i'd heard of before but again never actually listened to um the two from the 2000s i enjoyed a lot uh, they definitely this is the type of cl- classical music i i go to it reminds me of um why i love over um their classical i think it's called Messe. Um, oh yeah yeah that's that's a great piece and they've done some classical stuff um the first one i listened to is an, a composer who for the longest time i felt like i should listen to uh, Max Richter, The Blue Notebooks from 2004. Uh, again, a lot of similar ideas to Tabla Rasa, you know, kind of more um, ambient ways, more, you know, beautiful, elongated, uh, kind of creating a mood and atmosphere versus 
hitting specific notes. Obviously, there's some great virtuosity there in terms of um, the control the players have in creating these these swells of orchest you know orchestration and and whatnot. Um, I'd like the heightened use of electronics, though. I mean, very subtle, very um, not overbearing. Nothing, nothing that really you'd think of as like a keyboard or anything, but just like the texture and the lamp, the soundscapes mm. that a lot of modern classical composers do. You know, Oliver's great example. Uh, the next artist I'll talk about is a is a great example of using the technology at their disposal to just bolster what's been done countless times before. Is this on Spotify by any chance? Yep, I think okay. so. Cool, because like that sounds really cool, I, and I've actually never heard of Max Richter, so I'm like, he's, fuck yeah. He's one of those classical composers that gets more of attention than um, you know your average classical composer. I, I think he's done a lot of soundtracks, which is why he's kind of gained some acclaim. Um, hmm. But I, I don't know which ones he's done. Uh, I've just I've heard his name a lot, and I figured you know I should really listen to him. Um, so that that was phenomenal. I think the Blue Notebooks is, I believe it's based on the Iraq War or like you know inspired by the Iraq War in terms of you know like the pain and and, and whatnot. So it was kind of mm. interesting to think of that backdrop with the album. And finally, I listened to an album I had never heard of. You know, the rest of these I had heard of the composer or whatever. Um, I'd never heard of this group. They're an Australian duo, a winged victory for the sullen. Um, their self-titled album that came out in 2011 was really highly rated, not only just in the score, but how many people rated it. So that caught my attention. And it was an even kind of further extension of what I was talking about with the Blue Notebooks is, um, by, by Richter. For essentially ambient music, uh, you know, kind of taking the textures and the ideas of classical music and bringing it to um that kind of that kind of mindset you know using it to create such a swell of emotion and mood that you can really feel hmm. not so much punctuated by specific notes or specific technicality or anything like that and i feel like that's my general experience with modern classical is, is almost to put it simply, fewer notes. <laughs> and I don't know if that's like an unfair description, but a lot of the modern <laughs> classical, at least I've enjoyed, has just become more about mood and expression and taking, complementing traditional classical ideas with modern ideas and modern experimentation and modern um, instrumentation. And so the, this last album, uh, is this. Are they just using electronic equipment, or is it it's a mixture of like of orchestral instrumentation too? Yeah, there, there's violin. There's a lot of piano. Uh, it almost it almost makes me feel like it's not a post rock album, but it kind of hints towards post rock. And I don't know if I want to go so far as to say post rock is like the modern equivalent of classical music. In some yeah. ways, I feel like it it could be, but obviously there's other I ways. Feel where like it, ambient kind of is. Yeah, ambient, you know, some type of post-rock can make that um, that way, you know, in, in that sense. But it was it was a very, very interesting to listen to the lineage because I kind of kind of clicked for me why I think modern classicals has you know changed in its appeal for me and changed in how I view it because I really do feel like it has become more and more and more about mood and expression. Not that it wasn't always about that, but it, it, that's kind of the forefront versus doing you know achieving that through 
more instruments and more notes. It's kind of just focusing mm. on creating that mood in and of itself rather than, you know, having to incorporate an orchestra or having to incorporate any set of instrumentation or any type of notes or what have you. Mm. So this was a really fun time. I really yeah. I like listening to, you know, some music that I, or a genre that I haven't spent as much time with lately and I was glad to, glad to do it. Yeah, no, that, that that's really cool. I, I I didn't expect you to sort of run the whole gamut. Um, me on the other hand, so I I've actually like I for a couple years now I've I've had a list of classical pieces that I've wanted to check out and composers that I've wanted to check out uh, because I think years ago I read um, Alex Ross's book. Um, Oh, uh, the rest is noise, which is I, I highly recommend anybody who's interested in like modern orchestral music to just pick this book up because it is amazing and it just very it details the history and sort of how the sound has changed over time. Uh, I thought it was just an amazing read, but also that and um, William Duckworth, who I think is also a composer, um, has a book of interviews with a bunch of American composers which include, I think it started with John Cage, and then uh, I think Milton Babbitt was in there. Uh, I know all four of the minimalists were in there, so Glass, Lamont Young, uh, Reich, and Riley. But then uh, there are a couple of newer ones, like uh, Glenn Branca and uh, John Zorn. So based on those two books and sort of my own research, I had compiled this list that I had sort of ignored for a while now. So I just, I ended up going back to it and um looking at it a little bit and i also sort of looked through what i had already had in my spotify um like already saved but that i haven't really given a lot of attention so i'm just gonna go in alphabetical order because that's the way i have it written down right now uh my first thing i i have is uh glenn bronca's uh symphony number one which is called a tonal plexus uh which is an interesting strange very strange album um I, have you ever listened to any Glenn Bracca by any chance, Scott? I've heard. I th- I feel like I have, but I don't recall. So uh, I think the the Ascension is usually like yeah yeah I have about. I have heard. I don't remember much about it, but I remember listening to that. Yeah. Yeah. So Glenn Bracca's thing back in the day was sort of um, re- he was really interested in like overtones and sort of uh, harmonics in general. So you get a lot of that with this first symphony um, that sort of how if you it's really tough to explain that like if if you hit this like if you have enough sounds of like enough people playing the same note that like you can sort of hear the other notes that are actually expressed within that note um that's basically the best i can put it i'm not an expert by any means if that's isn't obvious already um but symphony number one had this really uh like oddness to it like there were a lot of guitars with it so it was like or it was an orchestra but it also had electric guitar <laughs> with it too that's interesting yeah well i that's sort of glenn Bronca's thing is that like he he's done like orchestras with like a hundred guitars before like it, it's in it, and, and weirdly enough i think i'm pretty sure that thurston moore um and J- and jim Rowe were actually part of that orchestra at one point huh um because they all sort of know each other. They all sort of came up at the same time. But anyway, uh, this is a really, really cool album. It, it took it took a little for me to like to grow on me. Just because like a lot of it, um, 
if you're not ready for it, like if you don't really know what to expect, it can be kind of one note. And I mean that like literally because like there are times when he's just playing one note and just repeating that note ad nauseum. But then there are parts, there are some of the movements in the symphony end up like going into like, the best way I can describe it is like almost like industrial territory. Um, and like some parts sort of get like a little ambient. It's it's just, it's a very interesting like full range listen that like listening to it again yesterday, I was like just blown away by just the like how dynamic it is despite the fact that it might not look like much mm. upon first listen it might not sound like much um next i have is uh georgie Leggetti. uh oh also uh for future reference i'm gonna butcher all of these names so if that <laughs> if, if, if that's not how you pronounce Leggetti, i'm i'm sorry but um i've always been interested in Leggetti, just sort of because he's always been like this sort of this um figure of classical avant-garde music and uh, for the for those who don't know, um, if you've ever seen the end of 2001: A Space Odyssey, they play his piece "Atmospheres" in it. Um, unfortunately, the I the album I listened to had uh, a couple pieces of his, uh, but most notably "Requiem," uh, which I found to be really interesting. Uh, they Ligeti's thing, well, not really his thing, but like he developed this this texture, this sort of use of texture called uh, micro poly, uh, micropolyphony that I basically the, the best way to explain this is like it's sort of like it, 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 it's almost like playing a tone cluster but basically it, it's basically producing a tone cluster through counterpoint techniques as opposed to just through a single instrument doing a tone cluster that's the best way I can I can explain this, but okay. it create it creates a very strange, very dissonant, but at the same time, sort of ambient sound, and um, so you see that a little bit throughout a couple of these pieces in this album, uh, I, and it was just it was a cool listen. I, I really want to like because he has some really cool electronic works that I really want to get into, um, but I haven't really been able to find them because mostly they just they just show off the graphic scores that he used for them. Um, Anyway, uh, James McMillan's uh, Violin Concerto and uh, Symphony Number no. 4 I had on next. James McMillan is actually the only composer in this list who's still alive, sadly. Huh. Um, he's still working today, but uh, I remember hearing... Um, oh, I can't remember his name. There's this composer on uh, YouTube, and oh, his name's Bruce... Oh, I can't remember his last name now, but he showed off a piece of james mcmillan's violin concerto for a video about um i I think it was sort of like about like cartoon music uh you know it it had to do with like john zorn but um this was a really really cool concerto the symphony i really didn't i I was sort of ambivalent about but the violin concerto was really cool because it had like this um this really like it had a real personality to it like um it like it sort of had humor and it really kept your focus the entire time which i, I think is really tough it, it's, it's a tough thing to do for a lot of for a lot of like orchestral music like this oh sure yeah yeah so that was really cool i highly suggest just listening to the violin concerto it's 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 such a cool listen um next i had arnold schoenberg's uh symphony number no. 1 up 9 and then his suite up 29 um 
and really like Schoenberg was sort of the developer of serialism and sort of the 12 tone technique where he's sort of throwing away any idea of like a tonic center or like any sort of uh, key based tonality in favor of using all the notes equally. Um, and that was, I thought this was a really cool listen because it, um, you can hear a lot. It's, it's very wild in a sense because it's not, you know, it, it doesn't serialism, you know, uses these notes in a completely different way. Uh, basically. So like everything, it comes off like meandering and busy at the same time. And just sort of, it, it sort of reminds me of like, um, you, you know, like in like cartoons, like when you have like some, um, you know, someone's distracted and like they sort of sit down for a little bit. It's it's like, it's, it's sort of like, that's the music that they play is like this really atonal type of weirdness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what a lot of this was. I thought this was really fun. It's, it's Schoenberg's worth listening to uh, just because he's one of the most important composers in modern classical music, in my opinion, uh, just, just because of that 12 tone technique. Uh, finally, uh, Edgar Varese, uh, I had a, this is an album with a couple of different pieces, but I mostly listened to it for uh, the piece Ionization. So I'm just going to talk about that, which is a um, percussion piece. And it's considered like one of the most important percussion pieces um ever really uh Varese was sort of known like he wrote an essay uh sort of about the idea that we should be focusing on sound itself as an instrument instead of notes so with that in ionization there's a lot of different like timbres and interesting sound play going on like there's actually a siren going off in the background too and you know it's an interesting piece especially because Percussion pieces can get really boring after a while. Uh, but I found this to be really cool. Really, really interesting piece. And also, Varese's um, hugely important uh, influence on, on Frank Zappa, actually. Really? Yeah. Uh, they, they, there's a whole story about, like, they actually talked on the phone when Zappa was, like, a, you know, a teenager, I think. Um which is really cool. He's, he's also a big influence on Zorn, especially in uh, Zorn's Moonchild albums. Um, but that's all I had. I really, I enjoyed this. Just, just I mean, I, I sort of did a gamut thing a little bit like you, because I think Macmillan's Violent Concerto came out, like, I don't know, probably like a decade ago now. But, so like, it, it's, it's, there's a little bit of a gap. But a- anyway, um, yeah, I, I thought this was a lot of fun. I really liked sort of, you know, checking these off my list <laughs> in a way and just, you know, really getting to know a couple of these composers a little more, um, you know, because like, you know, most of the time we sort of stick to our regular, uh, you know, like the, reg- the musicians that we know. Mm-hmm. And I-, I think that's the great thing about this little, you know, exploration thing that we're doing is that we, we get to check out people who we've been interested in, but we just haven't given the time to. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think I, I, out of out of all these, I, I think I enjoyed Glenn Branca's Symphony Number no. One the most, just because I, I think it has the most um, to offer with multiple listens. But anyway, that is what I have. Um, I think we're we're like a little over time at the moment. But um, do you want to do albums of the week? Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. So, what, what do you have, good sir? I listen to a fair amount of kind of more vibe music. Um, this week, I was wasn't in so much a uh, like a heavier mood or anything like that. So, I kind of went back to a lot of my um, you know, indie albums. A lot of favorites I had. Just kind of was looking for stuff that was. Uh, kind of calm and relaxing and a newer album I got that I spun a lot that I found very interesting was uh, Zebra by Jack uh, De, uh, Dejeunette. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, which is very different than what I thought it was going to be but I, I bought it a couple weeks ago. Um, There's actually a thrift store in the mall in Manchester um, and it was, looks really interesting. Uh, I really like Dejeunette's drumming um that he's done for various jazz albums over the year this however is a synth and trumpet album and what? it's a very interest <laughs> has a very interesting vibe um and i put it on several mornings over the last couple of weeks that has just i don't know it's just had a really interesting sound to it you know it's it's kind of has somewhat of a tribal influence it's um you know, nice analog synth, you know, nice elongated trumpet chords and, and bleats and stuff like that. Um, I, and I, I assume Dijonet's drumming on it as uh, well. A little bit. Not really, though. I mean, he it's it has some, you know, rhythms in the background, but mainly he just takes up the helm on the keyboard. Um, it Interesting. It was very much, very different than what I thought it was going to sound like, but not in a bad way. Yeah, it was very, it was very cool. Um, that's really interesting. I'm, I want to check that out now. What, what was it called again? It's called Zebra by Zebra. So okay, yeah, I'm definitely check that out. Um, I actually was sort of thinking the same thing that like I, I didn't really have anything new this week that I was listening to, but uh, I put on something that's been a while since I've put it on. And I really enjoyed it yesterday. Um, it's uh, Mersbound Gareth Davis is uh, Atsusaku. Oh, came nice. out a couple years ago. Yeah, it's a really, really great harsh noise record. You know, um, it's more of like that wall of harsh noise that I really like. That you sort of have to like pick out little bits of it. And uh, you know, listening to it again, I, I was hearing a lot of parts that I I had never really heard in it before. As strange as that sounds, mm-hmm. uh, but just like it, it just it felt different to me, and, and I, I found that really weird. But it was a really cool listen. And, um, yeah, I mean, I would love to see, you know, them do something again. I, I mean, I'm, I would love to see another Murs Bow album this year. So, <laughs> absolutely. We're, we're probably going to get one. Let's, let's face it. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, has he released anything so far this year? I don't think so. Yeah. But, I mean, he, he did that, uh, Hexa collaboration last year. And he did that Room 40 release last year, too. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, I, I mean, he, he he's never, like, you know, <laughs> gone into seclusion before, musically. Yeah, that's so for sure. It's, we just sort of have to, like, wait a little bit, and, and it, it'll be there for us, so. <laughs> it's uh, only a matter of time. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it. Yeah, that's uh, it was a very very interesting episode. Yeah, we, we got we got a beefy episode full of me being an ass, and um, yeah, that's that. All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening. All right. Bye. Bye.